This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. And now, here's Ellis Martin. In this episode of the Ellis Martin Report, we'll direct the entire show to discussion of COVID-19 in a way that primarily discusses health and economics. Our first two segments will feature Zicha Genesis Medicine, which is currently researching a repair through an aerosol inhaler designed for the affected lungs of COVID patients. Company President Dr. Jack Jacobs will give us a report on his findings. I'll then have a full ad hoc discussion with Zicha CEO Dan Montano, where he'll share his thoughts about the economics aspect of the lockdown, where he mentions countries such as Sweden remaining open throughout the epidemic. I thought I'd finish this episode, therefore, with an interview I conducted with Swedish financier and economist Peter Barka in Stockholm to get the story from his ground zero, so to speak. Let's begin the program. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with the president and chief science officer of Zicha Genesis Medicine, Dr. Jack Jacobs. Strokes, heart attacks, diabetes, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, brain injuries. These are just some of the major afflictions that have affected someone that we know or have known, people close to us. It's inescapable in this thing that we call life. Most often we lose these family members or friends. And again, many of them survive to live out a slow death or debilitation. Quoting from the company's website, zgm.care, Zhitya Genesis Medicine's drug development has led them to a possible treatment for those diseases and more, growing new blood vessels in the human body, a process referred to as angiogenesis. FGF-1 is a potent growth factor with just that ability. By growing new blood vessels in the human body, Zhitya believes that FGF-1 could reverse the root causes of those diseases. In this segment, we are going to discuss the potential for Zhitya's FGF-1 drug to remediate, repair, and essentially heal damage to the lungs due to the COVID-19 coronavirus through an aerosol inhaler. We've been chatting about FGF-1 for most of the year now, and today we'll direct the dialogue to the subject which is on everyone's mind, this epidemic which indeed affects the lungs of many patients. I would like to underline that we are making no absolute claims today. We're having a discussion based on the research that Dr. Jacobs has been doing. We expect a white paper out on the subject within a few weeks. Jack, welcome back to the program. Good to be back, Alice. I know for weeks, perhaps months now, you have been busy researching, doing work, figuring out how to best use the FGF-1 technology, angiogenesis, as applied to coronavirus. And I think we're going to have a conversation about the lungs, aren't we, today? We're going to talk about the lungs. That's right. Yeah. You know, as you know, we were hoping to start a clinical trial with Parkinson's disease and chronic depression. We talked about that at previous shows, but we've been shut down. Most of the hospitals aren't doing any type of clinical trials unless it relates to COVID. So yeah, I've had a few weeks here to really do some research, get into the electronic libraries. And yeah, I have found some very interesting things about hopefully treating some of the lung damage that is now being seen in people who have been infected with the COVID-19, as well as patients with other viral diseases such as influenza. What kind of information can you give us about your research? We were developing a growth factor, as you mentioned, FGF1. That stands for fibroblast growth factor, and it's part of a large family. There are about 22 members of the FGF family, and my research turned out that three of them, FGF1, which is the one we're developing, as well as a close cousin, FGF2, and then FGF7, all three of those 
appear to be very potent stimulators of lung epithelial cells. These are the cells that line the lungs and are involved in getting air into the bloodstream and carbon dioxide out. These are very important specialized cells in the lungs that are involved in getting oxygen into the body. And what happens, these epithelial cells, these are the targets for the coronavirus. So when the coronavirus infects person's airways, they actually infect these epithelial cells. And the virus divides and kind of they explode a bit and more viral particles get out. And as the infection gets into the lungs, the virus starts infecting the epithelial cells of the lungs, which again are very important to get oxygen into the body. The virus actually does damage to the cells, but the real damage comes later when the body's own cells, the first line of defense are these Pac-Man-like, they're called macrophages, they gobble up virus-infected cells. So they basically attack the epithelial cells in the lungs that have become infected with COVID. And at the same time, they release signals. They're called cytokine signals, which bring the body's immune system, kind of activate the immune system and bring the immune system into the battle. And these are antibody-producing cells. Killer T cells are called, but they come in and they battle, basically find and destroy virus-infected epithelial cells. But unfortunately, in some people, the immune system kind of goes into overdrive and starts damaging healthy epithelial cells. And that's where these people develop viral pneumonia, this ground glass phenomena they talk about when they look at an x-ray of their lungs. That's not a good situation. And what I found in my research is that in the past, people have been treated with our growth factors, FGF1, FGF2, and FGF7, after influenza, after the lungs have been damaged by influenza. And remarkably, they healed their lungs. They recovered lung capacity. And remarkably, there's even remodeling. Sometimes people get scars in their lungs after they've had viral pneumonia. And these growth factors were able to kind of remodel the lung and kind of bring it back to where it was before they were infected. So really remarkable. What kind of testing specifically has gone on in the short amount of time with regard to COVID-19 and the repairing this lung damage? Really nothing yet, Alice. In the past, during the SARS epidemic, I think it was about five years ago, they used some growth factor therapy to treat people after that epidemic. But with COVID, there's not been anything. But the beauty of it is, is like with FGF1, we know it's safe. We've put it into people's hearts. We put it in people's wounds. And the beauty of this technology is that you don't have to inject the growth factor. You can inhale it, you know, like these little inhalers. You just put the growth factor in there and people will inhale it once a day. And so it'd be really a simple clinical studies are set up, people could inhale it at home and maybe every few weeks be checked out for their pulmonary, their lung functions. And I think rapidly we could see if these growth factors could help heal the lungs in people who have lung damage after they're being infected with COVID. I had pleurisy probably about 40 years ago when I was 25 years old, and I'm told that was permanent. And it sounds like you've described the part of the lungs where I was most affected. And I would think this would also apply potentially to bronchitis victims, asthma a victim, also one more thing, COPD or emphysema. Yeah, good point. Yeah, so in the literature, I also covered these FGF, not ours, but FGF2 was given to people with emphysema, help them, help them a lot. Not seen anything with COPD, but again, that's a similar type of problem. So any disease which damages the lungs and people have trouble breathing afterwards is generally affecting these epithelial cells which form the air sacs, line the air sacs in the lungs. So I think any disease where there's some breathing complications 
be worth trying. Again, inhaling the FCF1 or similar growth factor is not a very invasive type of technology. So I think people, as long as it's safe, would be willing to try it if they have breathing difficulties. So I have to ask you at this point, having this knowledge, what are you doing? What is the company doing to present FGF1 as a mitigation or remediation of these symptoms of these diseases to get people back on track, especially with COVID right now. I'm preparing what we call a white paper on the use of these growth factors to treat the lung complications after COVID infection. So we'll get that out to our thousands of followers. But importantly, we'll do a proof of concept clinical trial, propose that either to the US FDA or to our friends who've approved us in Mexico to do a proof of concept study to get people to inhale our growth factor who have had lung issues and see if we can improve their breathing over a period of time. It's estimated that 30% of people who get COVID are going to have lung issues. And it could be long-term lung issues where they take years to, if they ever get back to normal pre-COVID type of breathing. How long do we have to wait before clinical trials are okay around the world and in the U.S.? I mean, you know, it seems like this is sort of an urgent call here. Yeah, I agree. In fact, just two weeks ago, we were contacted by some Asian groups and they say, we're opening for business here. We're going to start up doing clinical trials in Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong. So it could be that, yeah, we could do our proof of concept trial in an Asian country where clinical trials are going to be ramped up again. I'm not sure about here in the U.S. or in Mexico. So that's some hope. And again, we have the FGF1. We'd have to get it into an aerosol, but I think a lot of people would be willing to try this, especially if they're having breathing difficulties. There are reports coming out of China where these people who've recovered on exertion just lose their breath quickly and have lots of breathing issues. So I'm sure it would be a very interested clinical population to try our therapy. So is aerosol a delivery system? Yeah. So like people with asthma, they have those little inhalers. They have like albuterol for when people have chest tightness. Yeah, that's a acceptable form of drug delivery. Has this been done already with FGF? Dash one. It has not. It is not. It's been done with FGF-2, which is very similar, a close, almost sister to FGF-1. So there's precedent that our FGF-1 would also be useful. Well, with regard to Zicha, what is the corporate plan for the rest of the year here in 2020, the year that never was or maybe shouldn't be? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are, you know, all set to start off with Parkinson's disease in Mexico and Estonia. So once they open up, we can get those trials going. We're planning hopefully August, September timeframe to get those trials going. Now, that's not too far away. Will you be supervising these trials personally to begin with? I will, yes. We've hired a clinical research organization, which in Mexico, for example, they are Spanish-speaking healthcare workers at the hospital. But I designed the clinical trial, the protocol, and with their input from the neurologist down there, we'll all be supervising this first trial on Parkinson's. And then the second trial, which has been approved, is for ALS, which is in the U.S. is known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and that is also set to go. So we're excited about getting those going. And if we could do something on lungs, I think that would be great because that's really on people's minds now. And I think it would give us visibility in the biotech field. Well, Jack, I really appreciate your updating our audience with regard to your thoughts and your research on COVID-19 coronavirus and application of the FGF-1, I guess primarily as an aerosol for lung ailments and pulmonary concerns. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Alice. You have a good day. I've been speaking with Dr. Jack Jacobs, the president and Chief Science Officer of Zicha Genesis Medicine. Find Zicha on the web at zgm.care. That's zgm.care. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form.
And now let's chat with Dan Montano, the CEO of Zicha Genesis Medicine. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ellis. You live in Las Vegas. You're based there. Zicha is based there. What's it like, Dan? I've got to ask. How are the streets? What's going on in Las Vegas? It is completely empty. The strip is completely closed. The casinos are closed. The restaurants are closed. The shops are closed. The taxis are gone. It is like a ghost town. The restaurants, everything done, roughly a third of the population has been laid off and they're told to stay home and to wait for government's instructions that they're allowed to continue living. It's a nightmare. Now, you are a man of a certain age, just a few years older than me. Have you ever seen anything like this in your life? And I know that you're a financial historian. Has there been anything like this in modern times or even going back several hundred years? Well, I'm 71 years old, Alice, and I am a student of economic history. And I've read and followed economic history from the Sumerian records through the Byzantium, the Roman, the French, the Germans, the Spanish. And I can make the following statement. Never in history has there been an event like this. This is the first time in history where because of a disease, they have quarantined not the sick people, not the people suspected they could be sick, but this is the first time they have ever quarantined the healthy people and basically put them into an economic prison without any trial or due process. We're talking about basically the entire human race. I'm going to take issue because certain countries such as Sweden and Brazil and Taiwan decided not to go and utilize this draconian lockdown method. Sweden has remained open. Brazil has remained open. Taiwan remained open. Taiwan's economy has not closed restaurants, businesses, and they have fewer deaths than the United States. Sweden has remained open, restaurants, shops, theaters, and Sweden's death rate is similar to the United States. Brazil has remained open because the president made a comment that this pandemic and the action that's being proposed only works for those people who have full refrigerators and full bank accounts. That the 80% of the people in Brazil who have to work to feed themselves and their family don't have the luxury of this program. So I think a lot of this disaster is self-imposed. And it's much, much worse than the disease itself, you're saying, isn't it? Absolutely. The interesting thing is that for months we've been hearing, listen to the scientists, listen to the scientists, two million people are going to go die, the Corvin can do this, it can do that. And the question becomes, how could scientists know what it's going to do if they haven't researched it? Now, here we are in the middle of April, and we're finally getting data on how long this thing lasts, how long it extends. Today is April 20th. Yesterday, the University of Southern California announced that they had done their antibody test, and it appears that 50 times more people have the antibody than they originally suspected. Stanford reported their study in Santa Clara Valley. Stanford came back with the numbers 55 to 80 times higher. That means the fatality rate on this virus is basically about one-tenth of one percent, the same as the regular flu. And they're having a hard time keeping the number of deaths up because now they're blaming everything they can on the Corvin-19 to try and take the number up. It was reported that in the city of New York, there are no more pneumonia deaths. There are no more flu deaths. Everything is Corvin-19. Normal heart diseases are being filed as Corvin-19. So the reason New York has so much is not just because the people there are at epicenter of the disease. It's also because they're accounting for everybody. Mayor de Blasio came out with 3,000 more people died of Corvin-19 prior to them keeping records. When asked were they tested? He said, no, we can assume they died of that. So this epidemic or this pandemic is much milder than anybody imagined 
six weeks ago. And I, like everybody else, was scared to death to go out because the numbers were scary. What do you think the reason for this purveyance of so-called numbers and death rates and news is, Dan? Well, first of all, there's an entire industry of academic and elite forecasters who is always finding problems in the future that only they can treat. Whether you call it global warming or Y2K or the world's going to run out of whales, they're always out there looking for something that there's their form of expertise and you have to address it or we're all going to die. So this pandemic that's been declared, don't forget in January, the CDC, Dr. Fossey, all these people were saying it's just a regular flu, no big deal. Well, now, two months later, we're discovering from the evidence, it's just a regular flu. Now, it's got its own set of uniquenesses, but it's basically the same outcome as the flu. We have destroyed the airline industry. We've destroyed the automobile industry. We've destroyed the restaurant industry. We've destroyed millions of lives because people went into a crowded theater and screamed fire. Oh, I'm sorry. They screamed pandemic. And I think the motivation is just their own greed, their own selfish belief that they're smart and that the rest of us can't take care of ourselves. I've survived many flus, but I have never survived an economic crisis like we're heading towards. Dan, do you see any light? Actually, Ellis, I see a lot of light because I see a lot of Americans, more than anybody else on the world, that are saying, enough. I know how to wash my hands. I know how to cover my face. I know how, if I get sick, to take care of myself. And there's a lot of people like myself, who believe I probably already had this thing. As we look back now to the first part of February, my son, who attends a Catholic school here in Las Vegas, came home with a flu. And he got the flu, and one of his friends returned, his family returned from China for the Chinese New Year. And he passed that flu to my other son, my wife, to me, to people we know. We all had something we thought was the flu. Now, I want to get tested for antibodies, but I believe in the next four to eight weeks, the evidence is going to come out that this antibody testing and whatever, that by the end of June, everybody's going to find out it was a false alarm. And the reality is millions of people's lives have been destroyed. People have been put on alarm. People have been undertreated. Surgeries for cancer were deferred. Heart patients were deferred. All of this was unnecessary. But I believe that by the end of June, the evidence will be that this was a false alarm and the genius of the American people will go to work. And I heard a forecast this morning that somebody said if the states start to open up in the next two weeks, that the third quarter will be a 10% increase and the fourth quarter a 5% GDP increase. That's the good news. The bad news is they're saying the second quarter is going to be down 25%. So by the end of the year, we might be at 80% of where we were last year. But we got to get back to work. we got to free the American people. And we got to assume that they know how to take care of themselves. There's not a person that's listening to this broadcast that hasn't heard from their grandmother that one of the things you need to do in the spring and the summer is go out and get fresh air and exercise. Because fresh air and exercise always beats the cold and the flu. Fact. Don't stay inside where it's cold, damp, and you're breathing everybody else's air. They're doing the exact opposite of what common sense towards dealing with this is. We should all be out walking in the park. We should all be out getting exercise. And instead, they put us into our home. Can't even go to a restaurant. We can't even go talk to our neighbors. And this is all a falsehood. Social distancing is not working. They didn't use it in Sweden. They didn't use it in Taiwan. They didn't use it in Brazil. And the people have the same outcome as far as death as the United States. So I want to know... 
why do you have to close restaurants in Las Vegas, but you don't have to close them in Sweden, Brazil, or Taiwan? So I do see light at the end of the tunnel, but I would make the following comment. The American people have to be released to use their own genius to do what is in their best interest and not what some intellectual model or program thinks because if we haven't lost faith in these models by now, people really aren't paying attention. So in 2021, can we look past this or 2022? At some point in the future, can we look past this and go, what the heck was that? I think the answer depends on what happens at the presidential election in November. I think we've come to a decision point there where the American people are going to decide that they want government checks or they want Americans freed. And I wish I could tell you I know which way it's going to go. But if they decide that they want to go to government bureaucracy, I think the economy will be in basically the doldrums for 10 years. And I think if they allow us to be free, I think 2021 and 2022 could be boom years. But I don't know what the decision is going to be. That does scare me. We sure started off 2020 with a boom. January, February, and the first part of March were amazing for a lot of businesses. It was the best I've known in a long time. I was so happy. It's amazing how you can go from happiness to fear depression in less than a week. What have your conversations been like with Dr. Jack Jacobs of Zitcha Genesis Medicine? Well, Jack is a brilliant scientist, but Jack is also part of the PhD academic group. And so trying to get him to see common sense takes a little longer than my children, okay? But as we find studies, we find reports, we send them to Jack. We've told Jack, look, at all our clinical trials have been suspended. All of our stuff has stopped. Jack, this economy is not going to get going. Vegas is not going to get going. People are afraid to come here and get sick and die. We have to know if this thing is real. So everybody is flooding Jack every day with reports out of Sweden, out of Taiwan, sending them studies on the antibody testing, sending them stuff on hydroxychloroquine. All this stuff are these treatments, and we're flooding him with stuff because we want Jack to prepare a paper that shows that this nightmare has passed. Nobody is brave enough to come to Vegas or to join a clinical trial if they think they're going to die. So we have to find out, is this thing the huge monster that was advocated 60 days ago, or has it passed? And in June, life returns to normal. And that's been Jack Jacobs' task. Uh, unfortunately, he's getting flooded from everybody in the world now, showing him that this thing is nothing unique. Hopefully, he'll write that report within the next couple of weeks. So he's getting first-hand medical information from Sweden, from Taiwan, from Brazil, from all over the world. Absolutely. We're reaching out and we're pulling stuff out. Other people are pulling out. People in those countries are pulling out information because if the Swedes are just going about their lives and the outcome's the same, why did we shut down our country? Taiwan, a country of 23 million people, has had 40 deaths. So you're talking about as big as New York, bigger than New York. They had 40 deaths. They're 80 miles from China. They had 250,000 visitors with China. The Chinese were going to Taiwan at 250,000 a month. And when the Taiwanese found the virus, they started treating it like a bad flu. And guess what? They had 40 deaths so far. The Taiwanese are not worried about a second wave, which you hear on TV all the time. Oh, the second wave is going to come back and kill everybody come September, October. So we are definitely monitoring this because even for my own sanity, how can I accept 
that there's a brighter tomorrow. If I'm afraid that my wife, my children, my friends can be infected and die if they come talk to me, or if in July this thing lasts through the summer, or my gosh, it's going to come back in the fall in October and kill everybody again. I mean, these predictions are so outlandish by the intelligentsia academic forecasters that until we can prove or have evidence that this thing is just a regular flu people, yes, it does kill people, but 80% of them have underlying conditions, 86%. One report came out that probably 90% of the people who have died would have died within the next 6 to 12 months anyway. Like they would if they had the flu to begin with, if they're elderly, if they're in a nursing home, if they have underlying conditions. Precisely. Two years ago, 100,000 Americans died from the flu. That's a big number. Now, but it's the normal number is between 40 and 100,000. And yes, it does affect the weak, and it does affect the older, and it does affect the sick. There's no issue with that. But I'm 71 years old. I know I'm going to die someday. Now, with our heart medicine and our medicine for heart recovery and stroke recovery, whatever, I think I'm going to be 125. But this pandemic mentality, according to the United Nations in 1980, New York City is supposed to be seven feet underwater now because of global warming. Well, I always thought they meant physical water. I didn't mean they knew they meant financial water. That was a joke, Ellis. So what I'm saying is, is I do believe we're going to come back as we always have. Humanity's come back from everything. But this idea that you quarantine the healthy is insanity. This is a complete Orwellian state. This is the government. They now want to track our movement. This is the government saying, oh, you're not smart enough to know how to brush your teeth. I mean, this is unbelievable. I can't argue any point you've made at all, Dan. I can just shake my head and wonder what we've come to. The economy was so good, and knowing that it's an election year, and knowing how many people really hate and despise, for whatever the reasons are, the, the powers that be, I was wondering, what's it going to take to derail that train so he can't run on that message? And by God, it happened. The train got derailed. Well, let me make one comment that I think is a very big positive. I think that one of the positives out of this, and this may be a positive which saves millions of lives and thousands of lives of your listeners. When President Trump asked the head of the FDA how long to do a hydroxychloroquine test to see if this can help with Corvin-19 sufferers, and they said, if we go fast and do everything, it'll take a year. And supposedly Trump said, it'll take a year to do a 10-day trial. Now, in the last couple of months, trials are being done in record time. I'm not talking FDA speed. I'm talking unbelievable speed. The gentleman in Marseille, France, who did the hydroxychloroquine trial on the French, he said, does not meet FDA standards because there's not a double-blind control group. He said, no, because it's immoral. People are dying. You have to treat the people if you think you can save them. Understand, in our heart trials, in our heart trial, we have saved every single person that's been in our heart trial that got our drug. More people have died of heart disease in the last 60 days. Roughly 125,000 people have died of heart disease in the last 60 days versus 40,000 that have died from COVID-19, according to the statistics they're keeping. All right? And our drug can save half of those people. And yet when we do a clinical trial, we have to treat only 75%. We have to let the other 25% die, even though we know our drug will save their lives. So I think that the FDA administration, which received powers in 1962 to do 
tests for efficacy. Does this drug work? We have all kinds of people that said, that's none of your business if it works. Your business is, is it safe? And I believe that there is going to be a shock to the pharmaceutical world, to the drug development world, where people say, look at FDA. It used to take two or three years to get a drug approved. Now it takes 28 years because you demand trials to prove the efficacy. And now I believe you're going to see an unbelievable blossoming because I believe the powers that be in Washington, D.C., now realize the FDA is probably the primary contributor to many of the fatalities. Dan, this has been a very insightful conversation, and I look forward to that white paper that Dr. Jacobs is going to have on your desk within a couple of weeks, hopefully. Let's chat again soon. Thanks so much for joining me today, and stay positive. Thank you, my friend. Have a good day. Bye-bye. And you. I've been speaking with Dan Montano, the CEO of Zitya Genesis Medicine. The company's website is zgm.care. That's zgm.care. All you have to do is type into your browser zgm.care and you'll find their website. Feel free to contact me with any questions regarding this company as well and I'll make sure that you are connected to the company. Reach me as follows. Info at ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Recently, I conducted an interview with Dan Montano, CEO of Zicha Genesis Medicine. In that discussion, we chatted about the fact that Sweden, Taiwan, and Brazil had not engaged as a country in any sort of lockdown such as the rest of the world has committed to. I decided to reach out to a friend in Stockholm to gain perspective from a Swedish economic point of view on the results of keeping the country open and free from lockdown. Join me now for a conversation with Peter Barka, a Swedish economist, venture capital investor, and partner at corporate finance boutique Acor Partners in Stockholm with an economics degree from the London School of Economics. Peter in Stockholm, thank you so much for joining me today, tonight I should say. Thank you. Thank you. I've been having discussion here in the United States about countries that are open, such as Sweden, Brazil, and Taiwan, and the difference that these countries and economies and healthcare systems may have compared to the rest of the world, which is pretty much locked down. Now, I know that you're an economist. I know that you live in a Nordic country. Many people consider Sweden to be a wealthy country, and I I just wanted to ask you a number of questions. First of all, how are you and your family? We are all well, thank you, including parents and children. So we're all good, good and safe and sound. Thank you. Fantastic. I'm certainly glad to hear that. And please do give my very best to your family. I had the pleasure of meeting them all here in Malibu probably about a year and a half ago now, somewhere in that area. And just wonderful, wonderful, well-behaved people. Well-behaved people. Great to hear. Yeah. And uh, we very much appreciate your hospitality. Wonderful. Now tell us, Peter, what are conditions like there in Sweden? We have the impression here that your economy is just fine, that your healthcare system is amazing, that you haven't suffered many deaths. What is the truth? Uh, <laughs> I hate to, I have to uh, refute all of those three, I think. The economy, unemployment is creeping up and we have some additional 2 to 3% increased unemployment so far still relatively low but it's escalating quickly it's hit the restaurant sector service hotels 
Um, it hasn't quite hit industry as yet, but it is on the increase. Even if things that the economy is still open, it means that restaurants are probably running at 20%. Hotels are probably in the order of 5%. Any services like hairdressers, gyms, what it may be, are 10 to 20%. The big Garnier, the big truck manufacturer, Volvo Trucks, they've actually closed their factories for now. They're talking about reopening in a couple of weeks' time, but a lot of industry has closed down. So it would be safe to say that while the economy is open, no one is really operating at a profit and most businesses and industry is operating at a loss. Yes, that's correct. And if you look at retailers, basically all the retail stores are still open with the exception of, I would say, American stores, American-owned stores such as Toomey and Lululemon who have stores in Stockholm, they have closed. But all the big department stores, they are still open, but probably have sales in the order of 20%. They would likely be better off if they actually closed down for a few weeks. I understand I want to ask you about the economics overall in Northern Europe and Europe and then globally with your perspective. But first, let's talk about health. Let's talk about the disease. Let's talk about the death rates and compare that, if you will, to the rest of Scandinavia, which is closed for business. The death rates in Sweden are, we are currently at 220 deaths per million, which is a bit lower than the UK. It is around half, a bit less than half of Italy or Spain. But when we compare to Denmark, we're three times as high. We are eight times as high as Norway. And we are nine times as high as Finland. And these countries are all very similar to Sweden in the context of the, the geography and the population density. We have six to seven times as many deaths as the other Nordic countries. The other Nordic countries is more of a relevant comparison than, for example, Belgium. Belgium and the Netherlands are 20 times as dense in terms of population per square kilometer as the Nordic countries are. So you should expect to see much higher death numbers there. So what I'm hearing and postulating in my mind is that this is an extremely, extremely contagious disease that is best controlled by quarantine and lockdown of the healthy as well as the sick, in your opinion. Yes, that is my own personal opinion. I have to say that life in Stockholm is perfectly normal. We play golf, the gyms are open, all shops are open, restaurants are open. So life goes on, which does have its advantages in terms of quality of life. But in terms of the impact on deaths, it is not working, I would say. And we are still, if you compare Sweden to in particular Italy, where we are on the curve, I think chances are that we would see deaths which will be significantly higher than where they are today. And is it primarily affecting older people or individuals with underlying severe conditions? Primarily older people. The average age of the dead people so far, I think, is in the order of 75 to 80 years. And in Sweden, it's been particularly been spread in the old people's homes, with elderly care homes. 
So the primary reason for the downturn in the Swedish economy, if you will, is the fact that many people are choosing not to do business. You actually have the choice. There is nothing which is banned or closed. The schools are closed. They're about to reopen. As a citizen, you're allowed to go into any restaurant you like, pretty much, and go travel anywhere you like, go to any gym you like, for example. But people have actually chosen not to, which is massively affecting the service industry. And of course, we have no travel. So the hotels even though they're open, they are running at 5 to 10% occupancy. Are you optimistic about the Swedish economy recovering? Do you think it'll take as severe a hit as the rest of the world? And also in this picture, let's go back over 20 years and talk about other economic implosions, if you will, like 9-11 and the 2008-2009 recession. How does Sweden fit? And as an economist, take a look at the global picture. Will we recover? And who will first and who will last? Well, (laughs) if I knew the answer to that, I probably wouldn't be having this conversation. It's, It's a very good question compared to, as you said, 2001, 08, 09, 9-11. Personally, I think there's absolutely no comparison. This is a different animal altogether. Comparing it to 2008-09, what happened is that people's stock portfolios value got reduced by, call it 50%. But most people without a major stock portfolio weren't really affected. This is something completely different. It affects everybody. And even once the economy restarts, whenever that happens, um, whether there needs to be a vaccine or there needs to be a medication, don't know. But whenever it does restart, I think people's confidence will have taken a massive hit. I think everybody will sit on their cash much tighter than before. And people will consume in different patterns as well. You will not travel in the same way. You will have video conferencing rather than expensive flights, etc. I think it will be a different expenditure pattern once you come out of this, whenever that will be. Where do you think money will go once we come out of this? What are future economics going to look like And what are potentially good investments, in your opinion, down the road when we're able to? Or even now as a contrarian, for those of us that have been sitting on cash, I'm not claiming to be one of them, by the way. Again, very good question. I quite frankly don't know at this stage. Personally, I am amazed that the stock markets haven't fallen by more. The Swedish stock market is down 13, 14% on the year, very similar to the Dow, which means that it's down 20% from the peak. And we are now at the level we were at in August of last year, six, seven months ago. And six, seven months ago, the world was in a lot better place. I think we can all agree. Firstly, there may be specific stocks, specific sectors where there could be buying opportunities. But on the whole, I personally think that there is substantial downside from these levels down to where the stock markets were before the pickup over the last few weeks. I know that you're involved in the food and beverage industry. Correct me if I'm wrong in Northern Europe. Will it take a retooling to roll that out again? What will restaurants look like? I know we really don't know 
at this point, but certainly people do eat and certainly people do like to socialize. And again, I'm suspecting that deliveries will be another factor of society in this country. You've had Amazon and Uber Eats and all these pickup services and restaurants Mm. that are remaining open are only doing takeout or what you call takeaway in Europe. As someone who is in the investment world also, are you now looking at those potential opportunities or is it still too soon? The whole restaurant industry will see major changes and it will be accelerated. Take out digital ordering systems, digital signage, the ability to order through apps, etc., which requires substantial investments. That whole process will be massively accelerated now. And also in, for example, Sweden, you have Uber Eats and Volt and Fedora, which is you know, takeaway food, that will see a massive development. But I think that unfortunately, there will be a major clean out before you should actually go into the sector. As it is now in Sweden, as in the US, I would say that the majority of retailers and the restaurant operators, be it casual dining, fast food, or more upmarket is going into chapter 11 in particular. There are quite a few bankruptcies, but they are now pretty much all going into chapter 11, clean out 75% of the debt, renegotiate rent contracts and structures and take it from there. And until that shakeout has filtered through the system, it will be too early to go in, I think. I could look at this another way and call it consolidation with plenty of opportunities for entrepreneurs at this time. I would imagine there'd be quite a few of them, and these would be things that you potentially would take a look at. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And if we look at the the retail sector, as everywhere in the world, but also in Sweden, we have three, four, five of the major clothing retailers who have gone into Chapter 11 and or subsequently bankruptcy. And some of those will survive and there are major opportunities to pick them up. The restaurant sector, it hasn't got quite as far, but it's a matter of weeks if this continues. The restaurant sector will see the same opportunities and I think also hotels. It's hard to imagine all these hotels going under or not being occupied when I know Americans love to travel as well as Europeans. The lifestyle changes are just unknown at this point. Yeah, I was in NK, which is the main department store in in Sweden and in Stockholm. They have probably 10% of the customers they would normally have. They all have signs in Chinese with the Alibaba, Alipay payment systems, which was rolled out all of five or six weeks ago. They're all teed up to take these thousands of Chinese tourists, and that's gonna be a very long time before they reappear. Are we just seeing the advance of something that was going to happen anyway, the death of most retail stores and brick and mortar operations around the world? The virus is just sort of moving this along at a very swift pace. Personally, I think with regard to retail, I think what would have taken four years has now been done in four or five weeks. So it's just accelerated process, I think. In terms of hotels, in terms of the overall service industry, I think it's more of a temporary hit. 
which will lead to consolidation. Anybody with deeper pockets obviously will pick up assets. A number of entrepreneurs, we are working with one entrepreneur right now. He has a fantastic chain of casual dining restaurants. Um, has grown over a long period of time, very stable. You just cannot be prepared for anything like this. There is nothing like this. It hasn't happened since the Depression, really. Not even World War II. So everybody takes a hit, not just the retailers, but the banks, the financial institutions, the private investor, the service industries that service these retail operations like restaurants. Everybody takes a hit. Everybody takes a hit, like a snowball effect. And I think that effect, the filtering it through effect of that, it will happen relatively quickly, but it will be a few weeks before that has sort of passed through the system and no one will be protected. Everybody will take a hit, not least once in the US chapter 11 has been around for much longer, it's much more accepted, it's a relatively novel structure in Sweden, but it's now being used and you read about it on a daily basis with major companies going into chapter 11. Are we just at the beginning of this? What if we were to snap our fingers tomorrow? Could we come back in a month if this were to magically end somehow? And I'm also hearing that we don't even know the severity of it yet because we are just at the beginning after maybe a month and a half or so. I think the massive uncertainty is we don't know how long this is going to go on. From a Swedish perspective, this has only gone on. We were very late into it and really reacted on it very late. So in Sweden, this has only been going on for about four or five weeks. And already in the US, you know, you've reacted to it for longer than that. Other countries of Europe saw the effects of this probably two months or eight, ten weeks ago. So Sweden has really only been into this for four or five weeks. But the effects are astronomical in this short time frame. And every day that passes sees it going deeper and deeper and deeper into recession and possibly depression. None of us know what the depression feels like. None of us have lived through it. It was about 100 years ago. So, But you feel that that's coming. If this goes on for a longer period of time, if this goes on for another two or three months, then I think we'll get there. And even if it was to go on for, I think what would get the wheel spinning again is once you actually know that there is a date when there will be a vaccine or there will be an immunity or there will be a medicine. But as long as you have that uncertainty, you cannot make any forward-leaning investment decisions. No one is going to buy cars or houses or buy new machines or what it may be when you don't know for how long this is going to last. When you look at other countries in Europe, take Italy, for example, where there are signs that you can see that the curve is on the downturn now in terms of number of dead and you might see the beginning of the end. But this is in a lockdown scenario. What will happen once actually people start returning to work and going out on the streets? No one knows. You could see a second or third wave. So I think the uncertainty has to be reduced before there's any pickup in activity, in my view. So it's really all wrapped around, as you said, the vaccine and or a cure. And whenever that's going to happen and then consumer confidence, which is everything. Consumer confidence and also the industrial 
confidence to get into a position where you start making investments again. How has your professional world changed? What are you doing right now with regard to your work? And I don't need you to give specifics, but certainly you're continuing to work and think. What is your operational mode at this time? We are open for business and go to the office every day. But most of the major small boutique, most of the major banks, corporate finance houses with a larger number of employees, they all work from home now. But we are open. We have three or four mandates that are running. They're live, but everything is on hold. Um, on the one hand, a couple of them requires traveling and meetings, which physically cannot happen now. And there is also a situation we have. The buyer and seller, a transaction will happen. If there was agreement that the price was, call it 100, some six weeks ago, what is the price now? Is it 50? Is it 10? Is it 75? Everybody agrees it's not 100 anymore. But it's going to take a while. There needs to be more clarity before transactions start happening again. There will be a number of transactions for corporate finance boutiques for distressed situations with forced sellers or possibly very eager buyers looking for a consolidation plan. But but other than that, it's hold because there is too much uncertainty. Again, back to the same point. How long will the lockdown be? Three weeks, three months, nine months? Needs to be some clarity. If there's a positive note to wrap this up on, because I know you have to go, what would that be, Peter? I think the moment that there is a date for when things will return to normal, then I think there will be a, a massive pickup possibly in share prices, but just in terms of overall commercial activity. But until there is any clarity to that, it's going to be difficult, I think. Well, Peter Barca, I really appreciate your joining me today, my friend. We will have another conversation in the near future. My best to your family. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Very good to speak to you. And let's keep in touch. All the best. I've been chatting with Peter Barca, economist, investor, and general partner with Acor Partners based in Stockholm, Sweden. For the Ellis Martin Report, I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Visit EllisMartinReport.com